As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Talking about chicken a la king Mango and garbanzo tabbouleh Real potatoes and vegetables With roasted garlic and basil Zucchini ziti Granola fruit bar yeah. Look at all this beautiful food Hello, I'm Dan Adude, and welcome to Green Eggs and Dan, the show where I talk with some of my favorite people about their lives, their careers, and more. But all I care about is what is in their fridge. I'm very excited about my guest today. He is a cookbook author, a children's book author, a New York Times columnist, and a restaurateur. His first book, The Food Lab, was a New York Times bestseller, a James Beard Award winner, and he just released a children's book called Every Night is Pizza Night, which is also a New York Times bestseller, and... The 2020 edition of Best American Food Writing just came out. He's a busy man. In addition, he has the most NPR reporter-sounding name in history. (laughs) Please welcome to the podcast, Kenji Lopez-Alt. Welcome, Kenji. How are you doing? (laughs) Thank you for joining. It's funny how how we kind of got hooked up because you posted a picture of your fridge on your Instagram, and one of your fans was like, oh, you got to do Danadute's podcast. And we just started talking in the comment section of your Instagram, and here we are. I've all always been a huge fan of yours and uh it's it's very very nice to have you here oh it's nice to be here too yeah so i have a lot of questions to ask you and a lot to get to but first let's go into that picture of the fridge that brought us together you guys okay. can see the picture of the fridge on my Instagram at standupdan. Kenji, yeah, this it's a little full. <laughs> this is exactly how I would imagine your fridge to look like. I mean, it looks like <laughs> like a very not quite a mad scientist experiment, but more like a, a very calm scientist. Just kind of, <laughs> it's so orderly and so organized. Is it always like this? Well, I, I'm I'm surprised you say it's orderly and organized. I mean, it's not always quite this full. It's usually over full. But this, you know, I was doing, this was in the middle of a, um, I was, I, I spent a couple of weeks doing photo shoots for my upcoming book. Well, my book that's going to be out next year, October of 2021. Um, and so I was cooking through, you know, there's over 300 recipes in the book. And so over the course of, I was cooking something like 10 or 12 recipes a day. Jeez. So <laughs> um, my schedule during that time was, you know, I, I like to shoot photos during daylight hours. So in Seattle now, that's like, I was shooting photos between like 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Right. And then at night, I would go shopping for the next day's photo shoot, prep some of it that night, and then in the morning. So so in the fridge, you'll see there's like, I think it's eight, 18 boxes or something like that of food that I was going to, I the, the leftover food from the photo shoots, I was taking it to um, the children's hospital, to the, um, the nurses 
at the COVID ward. Um, so you'll see there's a bunch of boxes of like ready to eat meals. Oh, that is so cool. I was wondering, I was like, what do you do with all that extra food that you make? Yeah, yeah, I would donate it. And then the middle the middle rows are all sort of like condiments, either homemade or store-bought. Right. Um, and generally I have a ton of condiments in my fridge. Um, I actually wrote a New York Times article about chef's fridges and, and chef's walk-ins at restaurants and how there's always a ton of like sort of ready to ready to apply flavor bombs you know like condiments and sauces and flavored oils and things like that so i always have a ton of that in my that kind of stuff in my fridge what are your top three flavor bombs these days well right now it's i mean right now i'm working on stuff for my book so right right now it's a lot of um stuff that go with like noodles and and sort of more asian food chinese japanese and and thai in particular are things that i'm focusing a lot on right now um but so like thai thai chili jam you know which is made with chilies and and fermented oil and shrimp paste Mm. um so chili jam sichuan style mala chili oil i have a ton i have a like a one quart thing of that in my fridge right now because i made i made the recipe in my book like three times in a row so chili oil with which is flavored with like star anise and cinnamon and cumin obviously roasted chilies uh garlic ginger and then I always, always have some nampla prick, so um, the Thai condiment made with you know fish sauce and chilies. Mm. Um, it can be made, you know, made a bunch of different ways. But I usually have a version made where I pound up chilies and garlic with palm sugar in a mortar and pestle, mm. and then I add lime juice and fish sauce. And you know, all through those things, it's like they'll last for months and months and months or years in your in your fridge before they go bad i mean of course they never last that long but um but i always have a supply of that i think actually in the fr- if you look at the picture of the fridge um that i posted um there's some nampla prick on the in a in a little deli container on the left side and then there's some chili jam in a in a jar um on one of the shelves as well very cool so and i see i'm seeing a lot of noodles on the top right yes this was the day before noodle day. i think so the day i took this photo was the day after my second day of shooting for the rice chapter. So the box, the meal boxes are mostly like fried rice and congee. Yeah. You know, like rice porridge of various flavors. Um, and then it was the, the next day I was going to be shooting the first day of my noodle chapter. So there's all kinds of noodles in there right now. I love it. I love it. I mean, it's so I guess my ignorance is going to show here, but I basically only know about Sun, the Sun Noodle Company. Is that just like a beginner level or is there a lot of, can you get nerdy? No, no. So, so Sun Noodles makes ramen. They make, they make Japanese style. So they make Japanese, so ramen is, you know, ramen is, 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 is is Japanese, but it's, you know, it's based on Chinese wheat noodles. So Sun Noodle is a, is a company, I think originally based out of Hawaii, but is now, but now, or or maybe it was LA or something, but it's somewhere on the West coast, but they, they distribute around the country now. Um, No, Sun Noodles is great. They make, they make really good fresh ramen noodles, but um, no, but you know, but that, that's, that's just one type of noodle. If you go to you know, if you go to any decent sized Chinese or sort of general Asian supermarket, you're going to find dozens of types of noodles. Um, and, you know, they, they can be confusing. There, there's actually like a whole whole big section in my book about noodles. I'm sorry, you probably hear my daughter <laughs> That's okay. um, roaring. <laughs> there's a T-Rex loose in my house right now. Either a T-Rex or maybe a, maybe a Wookiee. <laughs> That's all right. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think the, the other, the, the major Chinese brand that's available throughout the country is um, mm-hmm. Twin Marquee. And they make probably a dozen different types of Chinese noodles ranging, ranging from, you know, wheat noodles to egg noodles thick thin wonton noodles all, all different types of noodles but yeah there are there are many different types of asian noodles okay so there's like the soup the the bowl of soup with the noodles okay there's the japanese version uh-huh. there's the chinese version there's the korean version well, there's multiple japanese multiple yes. versions in each in each of those countries. of course yeah. of course 
I feel like when I, and I get a lot of shit for this because I've brought this up before, but like I started up basically, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a ramen fiend. And like when I go to mm. Japan, I will literally just like run down lists and have like five bowls of ramen a day. And right. I feel like when, you know, I live in LA, there's a huge Kore- Korean community. And whenever I've tried the uh-huh. Korean version of like a bowl of soup with noodles in it, and I know there's a lot of different ones, it always just feels a little a little watered down compared to most like Japanese. I mean, maybe I'm just like comparing it to tonkotsu, which is obviously going to be a super hearty. Right, right, right. Sort of a flavor powerhouse. You know, the part of the part of the, part of the reason for that might be that you know ramen in Japan. So first of all, ra- in in Japan, ramen is still considered sort of well, many many Japanese people would consider ramen to be Chinese food um, because it's based on Chinese noodle dishes. Right, literally called la la men, right? The Chinese, uh, la, la, yeah, lamian, la right. Chinese, yes. Yeah, the the word is based on Chinese. Um, I, th- I think probably it's because ramen as a as a as a you know the ramen culture in Japan. Ramen is 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 kind of you know fast food. Mm-hmm. You know, even even when you go out to a restaurant, and of course now there's like sort of fancy places that do it, but it's always sort of like it's like that little place tucked under the train station, or it's whatever you know. So it's like it's fast food, and fast food in, in general tends to be very salty and very highly flavored um as opposed to as opposed to sort of home cooking or more you know other styles of food um so i think maybe in in what you're experiencing is just in korea there isn't that same that same culture that same sort of fast food noodle culture Mm. that you have in in japan um or or in, in parts of china also you know obviously a bowl of noodles in china like you can you can get them on the street, you know, and 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 it tends to be very highly flavored, very salty, sometimes very sweet, very sometimes very spicy. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's mainly it's probably that that sodium rush that yeah that that Japanese noodles tend to have um, because you know I don't think there are many people who, who live in you know say Tokyo who eat ramen five times a right. day <laughs> um, the way the way a visitor might. Right. Um, it it really is sort of like you know I would think of ramen in Japan in the same way I think of like. Like a fast food hamburger in the U.S., right? Yeah. It's like uh, a McDonald's hamburger has a very specific set of flavors um, that tend to be very salty, very sweet, um, just highly seasoned. Um, and especially when you compare it to, you know, like a fancy burger you might get at the steakhouse where where it's more about the quality of the beef and less about the amount of salt on it. Right, know? right, right, right. So I, I think it's I, th- I think it's, just, it's almost just apples and oranges, you know, Yeah. Um, that you're comparing there. Okay, got it, got it. So I, that was the nicest way of telling me that I'm being stupid. <laughs> I, pre- I appreciate <laughs> oh, no, no. it. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So, Kendra, you you occupy a very interesting place in the food world to me because I first discovered you with with uh, you know America's Test Kitchen and then the Serious Eats blog, uh-huh. and 
you were doing. Oh, you've, you've been following since way back. Yeah, then. and you okay, were doing. Yeah. You were doing like something really ex- interesting because you were approaching food from the scientist perspective, and I I was pre med, and I, I appreciate science a lot, and I uh-huh. feel like there is this almost a dichotomy, or there's like a little bit of a war uh, between being super precise when it comes to cooking and also just being soulful when it comes to cooking. And Frank Prisanzano, who he runs Supper and Frank and Little Frankie's in New York, and he's super traditional Italian mm-hmm. guy. And he he urges mm-hmm. people to never look at recipes and never pay mm-hmm. attention to this and just, just do it by feel. And I feel like you're the other side of the spectrum right. where you're like, well, science actually can answer a lot of these questions. I guess, how do you speak to that kind of dichotomy of the of, of just passion and going going off the dome versus, yeah. you know, pipetting stuff? Yeah, well, so I, th- I, th- I think it is, you know, I think it's a false dichotomy, first of all. Um, I don't think there's this contrast between precision and soul or, or science and soul or science and heart. Um, you know, um, I certainly understand someone like, like you know, like, like Frank's... Um, like like his response, you know, that um, you, you shouldn't need to follow a recipe. And, and there are people who learn that way, you know, and, and especially in certain, you know, and you tend to find them more in certain traditions. Like certainly like in the Italian tradition, there there is this very intimate connection with food and the connection between food and family and culture. Um, and a lot of Italian people, um, whether they're in Italy or, or immigrants in the U.S., will grow up in families where food is sort of a central thing and you kind of grow up in the kitchen. Um, and it's not that you're you're cooking by feel. It's just that you, you've, you've grown up with these certain foods and you've grown up watching people do it or you've probably grown up helping people do it and doing it yourself. And so, so when someone says they're cooking by feel, what they really mean is they're cooking by not necessarily an instinct that's like innately in them, but it's something that they grew up doing and something that they grew up knowing. And, and it's getting to the point, you know, so it's like... It's like learning a language, being around... Being yeah, around yeah. It's language. like when, you, when you're riding a bike, right? You, don't, you, you would never say, I'm riding my bike instinctually, I'm riding my bike by feel. Mm-hmm. You don't actively think about it when you're doing it, but it's still something you learned at some point and that you picked up, right? Um, and so, so, you know, the difference for me is that I... I didn't grow up in a kitchen. I didn't grow up cooking. Um, I grew up, um, you know, my 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 father was American. My um, my mother is Japanese, um, and she cooked some Japanese foods, but also tried to cook a lot of sort of American foods, you know, like Betty Crocker stuff. Right. Um, and so I didn't grow up with a very sort of strong food culture, um, and I didn't definitely didn't grow up cooking a lot or grow, grow up, uh, you know, like on my on my grandmother's knee in the kitchen. Um, and so by the time I got to like college. Um, and then by the time I started working professionally in kitchens, I'd never really cooked in my life. I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't have this sort of instinctual feel for it. Um, and so I came at it from a from a perspective like, hey, you know, I don't get why I'm doing this the way I'm doing it. I don't get why someone tells me to do it this way and a different person tells me to do it that way. So I'm going to learn about it the way I know how to understand things, which is um, thinking about it from a sort of you know from a science from a science perspective. I would never call myself a scientist, but I, I do sort of try and you know, look at the world through a scientific lens in that um, I trust sort of testing and I trust learning the, um, you know, the first principles and the, and the, and the whys. And so, you know, I, so that, that's, that's sort of how I came to that approach. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily, and, and again, like, I don't think it's a, a dichotomy, you know, it's like, I, I think about it sort of like, if you think about like a mu- musicians, right, you think about music, um, and I grew up playing music, right? So like I, I played violin and, and we always practice our scales and do all this stuff. Yes. Um, and, 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 but you know, there are, there are great musicians out there who never learned how to read or write music. You know, it's like, like George Harrison couldn't read or write music, but at the same time, it's like, 
you wouldn't say that a musician a musician who is practicing scales is somehow that practicing their scales and learning about um, music notation and learning about music theory that that's somehow going to interfere with their ability to express soulful music right it's right. like on, on the it, it's actually sort of the opposite it's like the, the better you understand you know the more used to, to to playing scales your fingers get the more easily you can sort of translate what's in your brain out into the real world um, and that's sort of how i think about music it's like uh, about cooking it's like when you understand the science and the background and the techniques behind why you're doing what you're doing it doesn't suddenly take away from what you're doing and in fact i think it allows you to be more expressive um it's like um you know, and it's the same with anything. It's like it's like if, with with language. It's like you you have thoughts in your head that you want to get out into the world that you want to express to other people. Well, the better you are with language, the more easily you can take what's in your head and and express it to other people. Right. Um. So it's the same with cooking. It's like if I have this idea in my head of what I want something to taste like, you know, the more I understand how cooking works, the more easy it is for me to then take what's in my head and put it on a plate. Um. Which is not to say that everyone needs to do it that way. That's just how I operate. Um. But I but I don't think those two things are are opposite. Um. At all. Yeah, I agree with you. I think what happened is that a lot of people in America, in our generation, I feel like you and I are probably similar in age, we didn't grow up with a lot, or they didn't grow up with a lot of food, like what you're saying, food culture right. in the house. And it was, yeah. it was like, we didn't have any of that base. And I feel like what this, what this brings in is a very, very, very good basic understanding, I mean, basic to advanced understanding mm -hmm. of how heat works and how heat transfer works and how salt works. And, and it all makes sense. Like I've made a bunch of your recipes where I'm using baking soda to dry out chicken skin to, or duck skin to make it crispy. Right. And <laughs> it's something that I would never think of doing, but it makes a ton of sense. And again, it's like, it's like, you know, also with like painters, like if you look at Van Gogh's early works, it was all still lifes that looked, you know, it was nothing right. like what he ended up doing. So whether you're learning the basics from grandma or from, you know, Kenji, <laughs> you're going to have to learn your basics <laughs> somewhere. And I think that the way that you were doing it was so fascinating to me because you would basically, you know, to, to, to master a chocolate chip cookie recipe, you'd make it like, you know, 12 different ways with different temperature and different, uh, you know, chocolate chunk sizes. Yeah, I think that one I made it, I made actually like I think it was over. It was like 120 something. Are you serious? Something recipes. Uh, I can't remember, but it was, it was something like that. It was it was some absurd amount of cookies. It's amazing. <laughs> so what are? Let me ask you this: Like, what are the most popular kind of cooking no nos that people still do now, but have no basis in science? I don't think there are any necessarily cooking no nos. Um, there are there are things that people sort of misunderstand. You know, they'll say like. I mean, you know, the classic example I think would be like searing meat seals and juices, right? Right. People, there are still people who say that, and you see, you go on TV and you see people still saying that. You read books and you still hear people saying that, which is it's just not true. Like searing meat doesn't seal in anything, and you can you can very easily see that because if you if you if you're cooking a steak, right, it's like you you put it on your grill or in a pan and you you sear one side really hard, get it nice and brown, then you flip it over, and if you let it, um, oh sorry, I've been saying sear so much that Siri just turned on. That's um, hilarious. <laughs> when you flip it over and you let it sit there for a while, eventually, like eventually, juices start bubbling up out of the top, um, and so it's like clearly not sealed or seared in any way. But on the other hand, um, searing meat does like. You know, it triggers a Maillard reaction. It creates these brown flavors. It creates a, a, a textural contrast. So there's like all these great reasons to sear meat. Right. Um, just the sort of the classic explanation for why you should sear meat um, is incorrect. 
but you you know you find you find that a lot with sort of like um, traditional cooking knowledge um, that there's a lot of things with you know traditional cooking and and information that's passed down sort of generationally from you know through families or from chef to chef to cook you know through restaurants and stuff. There's a lot of these things that are sort of passed down that work really well, um, and that there's lots of great reasons to do them. It's just oftentimes the reason you're given for why you have to do them mm. is is not necessarily completely accurate. Um, and you know, and and that's fine if you're if if all you're doing is cooking that one thing. But then if you want to sort of more generally apply those principles to other dishes, um, it's better to know why those things are working so that you can more, um, you know, so you can apply them. I think in more intelligent ways to other dishes. Um, it's it's hard off the top of my head. I mean, I know very frequently I come people I, I'll go on like online forums or books or whatever, and people explain something and be like, no, that's not quite right. Um, but, uh, it's, it's hard off the top of my head to just think of more examples. Some, something that you did that was so counterintuitive to me, but I started doing it and it's probably all I do now is, is making pasta in a frying pan. Oh yeah. 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 I love that move. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I worked in one of the first restaurants I worked in, um, was a place called number nine park in Boston. It was a, you know, sort of modern American, Northern Italian place, but we did a lot. I worked on the pasta station for, for, I don't know, a year before I moved to another station, but, um, you know, anybody who's worked at a professional pasta station will tell you, you know, so you have these like big machines, you know, a big thing that boils like 20 gallons of water at a time so you can cook a bunch of pasta with um, order after order. Mm-hmm. Um, and as as the shift progresses, um, the water in that machine gets sort of starchier and starchier because the, the washed off starch from the pasta ends up in the water. Um, and when you're completing a pasta dish, um, whether at home or in a restaurant, you take some of that pasta water and you, so you have your sauce in a pan, you cook your pasta, you put the pasta in the sauce and then you have some of the the pasta water, that starchy water and you add it to the pan. Um, and what that does is it kind of helps emulsify the sauce um, and it also helps it adhere to the exterior of the pasta better, that starchy pasta water. Yeah. Um, and so um, as the night progresses, um, you know, at the beginning of the night when the water is almost no starch at all, um, it doesn't work very well and it's it's more difficult to make a good plate of pasta then then you hit this sort of sweet spot where it's like all right i got just the right amount of starchiness everything's coming together perfectly and then eventually especially on a busy night like it starts to get overly starchy and you have to be really careful about not making the sauce like gloppy or too too thick with pasta water Mm. um at home um you very rarely reach that sweet spot because you're not cooking a ton of pasta at a time right you're cooking um maybe four portions or maybe eight portions um and generally you're cooking it in a giant vault pot of boiling water um and i believe that the reason why um you're given this advice to cook in a very big pot of water is because pasta used to be made differently you know pasta um dry pasta so, so there's a difference between dry pasta and fresh pasta but even dry pasta um you know the old school method the pasta was extruded through these bronze dyes mm-hmm. And they had to be extruded at relatively low low speeds, um, and the exterior of them would get kind of rough from those bronze dyes, and then they would be dried at a relatively low temperature. Mm. Um, and so there's still a ton of like active starch, and they have this rough surface, which increases their surface area, and that also releases more starch. So with old school pasta, um, the pasta water gets re- rel- relatively starchy relatively fast. Um, with modern pasta, like the stuff you're buying at the supermarket, almost all of it is extruded through Teflon dyes. Mm. Um, so extruded at high speeds, um, the exterior of the pasta is very smooth. There's very little free starch. Um, and then it's dried at higher temperatures as well, um, which deactivates the thickening power of that starch. Um, and so when you cook modern pasta in um, a large pot of boiling water, virtually no starch at all will end up getting in that water. And so the pasta water is not very effective at emulsifying your sauce. So by cooking your vol- your pasta in a much smaller volume of water, 
you know, so instead of a gallon per hundred grams of water, whatever they recommend, um, I basically put just enough water to cover it, or I do it in a, you know, if I'm cooking spaghetti, I'll do it in a wide, a 12 inch skillet, um, yeah. with like an inch or two of water in it. Um, and that, um, with modern pasta that, um, it's plenty of water to cook it in. Like it doesn't stick. And moreover, um, the pasta water sort of ends up getting concentrated that way. So it actually has a much more significant effect when you then add it to your sauce. So it, it, it it's, it's that sort of, you know, that, that kind of stuff is just like, a combination of, you know, like old school knowledge that just never changed with the times because we don't make pasta the same way we used to. Yeah. Um, and then and then I think some of it is also just like, you know, we we, we re- cooking in a restaurant is very different from cooking at home. And sometimes we as home cooks and especially like when chefs like restaurant chefs write write cookbooks for home cooks like. I think some of that gets lost in translation that the understanding, the idea that cooking a meal in a restaurant, first of all, like the equipment's completely different. Um, But more importantly, like the parameters are different. It's like at a restaurant, you have a guest on the other side of those kitchen doors who doesn't want to wait more than 10 minutes for their main course to come out. Right. Right. Um, And so everything in a restaurant is really designed around sort of efficiency and consistency. Whereas at home, it's like dinner's on the table at six o'clock. I can, you know, if I, so that means if so long as I plan, right. Like I'm not really constrained by time. Obviously, you're constrained by your job and and all those other things. But it's like, it's not like someone's going to come randomly. Sometime between 6 and 8 p.m., someone's going to come in and order one of 20 things on a menu. And I have to have that thing ready in 10 minutes. Right, right, right. So it's a very different way you're cooking in a restaurant than when you're cooking at home. So obviously, a lot of the sort of tips and techniques that work in restaurants don't apply directly one-to-one to to home cooks. Um, You know, so one of of the consequences of that, for instance... um, a lot of people used to cook, you know, steaks, pork chops, things like that. Um, fast cooking piece of meat, they would try and emulate the way a restaurant, a steakhouse cooks it. Um, so at a steakhouse, it's like you got like a, you know, an 8,000 degree broiler or you have, or you have like a grill. Right. Um, and you're, and you're also cooking probably the grill cook at a steakhouse, is probably cooking 15, 25 steaks at a time. Um, it has to manage all of those. And so this idea where it's like you, you, you put it on, you, you cook your steak fast and hot and you only flip it once. Um, I think a lot of that probably comes from restaurant chefs who are like, this is how I do it at my restaurant and this is how why customers pay for it. Right. Um, this is why it's good. Um, ignoring the fact that probably the steak that they're cooking at the restaurant, first of all, has a higher fat content, so it's going to cook more gently than what most people are getting at home. Mm-hmm. And also ignoring the fact that at home, you don't only have 15 minutes to cook a steak. You have you have as long as you want. Um, and so as it turns out, it's like, um, well, a lot of home cooks now use this technique um, that I, I developed when I was at Cook's Illustrated called the um reverse here which um some other people have been doing um i've done it so many times it's it's so great it's foolproof yeah yeah so it, it takes a long time it takes like 45 minutes but it's like mostly hands off um and i think it produces results that are better than um you know than than what you'd get in sort of a steakhouse these days provided you can get the same quality of meat which you always can't always because restaurants kind of have first dibs on that stuff but. oh i didn't know that i didn't know you invented the reverse sear kenji uh no 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 I, <laughs> um so i i didn't invent it um so before I, I wrote about it in cooks illustrated and um so i kind of independently arrived at it um and it was because i'd been cooking at a restaurant where we cook things sous vide yeah um and i and when i was at cooks illustrated it was like all right how do we take this technique called sous vide and apply it to home cooks because at the time sous vide devices were like two thousand dollars, right. fifteen hundred bucks, two thousand dollars. So that, that's how I came up with that reverse here. Um, since then, you know, the, you, you should go. What you should do is go to amazingribs.com, um, uh, Meathead Goldwyn, his site, and look up. There's a history of the reverse sear. So uh-huh. there were um, there were some other people. You know, I know like um, Alton Brown and Heston Blumenthal have been doing similar stuff to prime rib. 
previous to that article I published in Cooks Illustrated. And then there was another guy, um, I think his name is Chris Stuckman with, um, I think it was called Iron Pig Barbecue, something like that. But he he had been doing it in barbecue circuits. Um, yeah. so, so there were definitely like other people who had been doing it um, in different capacities. Yeah, by the way, for those of you who don't know how the reverse sear works, it's so great. You basically... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Kenji, but oven at 250. Yeah, or as low as you want. As low as, as you low want. Any, any, anything, anything above 150 degrees or so. Yeah, works. and just like leave the leave your, preferably a thick cut of steak. Put right. it in there until you get an internal temperature of like 113 is usually when I take it off for a medium rare. And mm-hmm. then just sear it on both sides in a in a cast iron. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's kind of like, it's called reverse sear because it kind of, the typical the traditional restaurant method would be to sear it first and then finish it in a hot oven. Um, and this method, you start it cold. You take it straight out of the fridge, season it, and put it into a put it into a low temperature oven. Let it slowly come up to final its final temperature, and then sear it at the end. Um, and the difference is that you end up with a more sort of even cooking pattern. Mm. Um, you know, so you you get less of that sort of bullseye pattern where it's gray on the outside and red in the center, and you get much more sort of even pinkness from edge to edge. Um, and then it also actually makes it easier to sear because the surface is kind of dry and hot when it comes out of the oven, right. as opposed to wet and cold out of the fridge. What is the science of resting meat? Is that a BS thing or is that a real thing? Well, I mean, resting meat is real in that in that you can rest it if you want to or you can't. But um, they always say like the juices are all going to come out if you if you cut yeah. into the steak too quickly. Is that is that a So, you know, so so there's a couple there's a couple things to consider here. Um so certainly if you cut into a steak right off the grill or right out of the pan um, as opposed to letting it sit on the counter for 10 minutes, um the juices are going to more juices will come out. Um the question is, does that matter or, or do you care? Um, and what are the trade-offs? You know, and so for for some people, you know, like Adam Perry Lang, who's um, um, he has a now has a, I'm, I'm sure you've been to APL barbecue yeah. in LA, yeah, yeah. Um, and he had, you know he he had a steakhouse in New York at the at, at a strip club at the Penthouse Club for a while. But he, you know, I remember he had, that, yeah, and it was a good steakhouse. It was such a baller move to open a steakhouse in a strip club and make it actually a yeah. quality steakhouse. <laughs> and it was actually like a great steak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He has this concept. I mean, he calls it charred scruff, where he basically like bashes up the outside of the steak with a knife. Um, and because his idea is that like the really the 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 eating quality of a steak, the, what makes a steak great is that contrast between the the crusty, crispy outside and the juicy interior. And so he'll scruff up the outside with a knife, and then he'll sear it, and then he serves it really blazing hot. You know, and mm. so you get and so doesn't rest it um and and so you get this one kind of eating experience whereas a lot of other you know like maybe a more traditional french chef might say no 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 like you want it you want it you got to let it you got to let it rest so that the juices are more evenly distributed inside um you know with when modernist cuisine came out i think they also did some research into this and found that it's not necessarily that the juices redistribute inside it's all part of it is also that the juices cool a little bit so they end up being a little bit more viscous so they don't come out as fast when you come to the steak there's a number of reasons why the juices stay inside the steak um but but it's it's got to be a question for you like which one which one do you care about do you care about those juices coming out in your mouth and sort of slowly coming out as you chew or do you want that crispy outside um what i do these days is i i am i, I call it the the hot fat flash but basically what i do is i I do rest my steak, mm-hmm. but then what I do is I take all the drippings, all the fat that, that's come out of them, reheat that fat in a skillet until it's like smoking hot, um, and then pour it over the steak just before serving. So after the steak is rested for 10 minutes on a rack, I take that hot fat, I pour it over the steak um, just before serving, and that kind of, you know, and, that, and that, that will immediately sort of bubble and sizzle and crisp up the outside again. Um, so the exterior is really nice and hot, and you get that crusty, crispy exterior, um, but you also get sort of the well-rested interior. Um, and that that's that's the technique I use now. I like that a lot because that's one of the issues when you rest it too long is like, okay, yes, the 
it it tastes great, but it's I wish it was just a tad bit hotter. Yeah, you I mean that that's that's one of the sort of downsides of a lot of modern restaurants I find, especially those that utilize these these new sort of modern precision temperature cooking techniques, whether it's sous vide or using CVAP ovens or whatever. It's like all right, I cook my steak to precisely 127 degrees through and through. Right. Now I'm going to put it on the plate with like 27 different components. And by the time it comes out to your table, it's just kind of lukewarm. You <laughs> right, know? right, right, right. Um, that, that is a problem. Um, and so I definitely see, you know, if, if that's your alternative, I would much rather have a steak hot off the grill. Totally. Delivered straight to my table than, than something that's kind of lukewarm. And, and that sometimes does end up being the trade-off. I love it. But you, you, can't, you can't have it both ways if you're, if you're, if you're precise enough right. about it. Right, right. Back to Kenji in one second. But first, let's talk ramen. I love ramen. All kinds of ramen. Pork-based, soy-based, miso, jiro-style. In fact, I love every single version of ramen except for one. There is a ramen shop in Tokyo called Menyakono, and they specialize in something called, dear lord, tequila ramen. The chicken and fish-based broth contains a shot of tequila. Because what goes better with chicken and fish broth than friggin' tequila? The bowl of ramen is topped with a handful of coriander and a piece of lime. You must be over 20 to order the bowl, but kids, do me a favor. Use your fake ID for something better. Okay, back to Kenji. Okay, so now I'm going to get to the uh, questions that I get to at the end of every episode that is going to okay. obviously uh, get us into some more more fun food talk. But uh, what is your earliest food memory? <laughs> um, I, I can't tell you exactly what my earliest food memory is, but I, I know like I, my, this, the strongest food memories from my childhood, um, there's two of them, and they both came from the same day. And this was, um, we had a, a family friend who had a house in Cape Cod, um, and I was out there with my parents and my sisters, um, and so... I remember um, a day when me and my sister, I was probably three or four years old, mm-hmm. me and my sister were out digging for clams um, for a few hours in the afternoon. Um, and you know, and you and the way you dig for clams are you get a bucket and then there's a ring, right? Um, and the ring tells you whether the the clam is big enough for you to for you to be allowed to keep it or not. Um, and the rules are, are that if you can if the clam doesn't fit through, in any dimension, like if you can make the clam not fit through, then it's big enough to keep. Um, and we thought it was the opposite, where it's like if you can force the clam through, then it's too small to keep. Right. And so we were out there for like two hours digging for clams, and we were, and all of them were too small to keep. And we came home with like three clams in a bucket. And my dad was like, "What? What were you guys doing? You were out there for hours." And we we're like, "They were all too small." Oh, um, no. And we and we came home with these like three giant clams. <laughs> Um, he's like, well, the, like you found like these three giant ones and all the rest were too small and you had to throw them all back. And, and then, you know, we realized what had happened. But anyhow, we ended up with three clams that day. Um, and so I remember um, my dad shucking them and we ate them raw, like just straight there at the kitchen table. So eating raw clams is like one of my earliest food memories. One of the earliest things I can remember and thinking like, oh, wow, like this, like this is amazing. Like this, like, this is like we just like pulled out of the ocean and now we're eating it. Um, that was, you know, that, and then, and then later that night, because we didn't have clams to eat, um, my dad made some quesadillas and we had this like really hot green salsa. Um, and I remember my dad saying to me like, oh, Ken, like, be careful. He calls me Ken. He's like, Ken, be careful that that salsa is really hot. And I remember like thinking like, oh no, like, I'm not going to let that, like, I'm going to be tough and just eat it. (laughs) Right. Um, and so I remember like sitting on the back, back porch in this house in Cape Cod on the beach at night, 
eating the salsa that was like way too hot for me, but but kind of like powering through it and pretending, <laughs> pretending to be tough um, for my dad. Um, so th- those would be my two earliest, two of my earliest food memories, I'd say. You know, it's funny. I actually grew up kosher. And then when I stopped being kosher, the first seafood that I ever had, because I'd never had shellfish, the first shellfish I ever had was probably the worst intro shellfish that you could have, which was a raw giant clam. <laughs> and I was like, oh my, it was so aggressive. So I'm surprised that, that you enjoyed it as a kid. I mean, you know, raw shellfish, oysters and clams and... In fact, quesadillas. Are, I mean, they're now, now two of like my favorite foods. Yeah. Um, and my my daughter loves 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 raw seafood. Also, um, she I mean she's like four, or not even four yet, almost four. Uh, but she yeah she loves raw shellfish. I love it. Um, raw food and raw, raw seafood in general. Switching gears. What is your death row meal? So you're talking to a chef. He's like, no, dude, searing does seal in the flavors, and you're like, no, it doesn't. You guys get into a knife fight. You kill him. You're on death row. What is your death row meal gonna be? Um, mapo tofu. So not not the you know I love mapo tofu in pretty much all its forms. Um, Wait, what is mapo tofu? I'm not sure what that is. Uh, mapo tofu is a it's a Sichuan dish. Um, so it's um it's it's a dish of soft tofu like cubes of to- soft tofu that are very briefly braised um, in a sauce made with um, ground beef. Although often these days it's, in the U.S. especially it's made with ground pork, but traditionally made with ground beef um, and um, dobanjang, so which is a uh, Sichuan um, chili. Uh, bean paste is for it's fermented broad beans and fermented chilies mm. um and then uh citron peppercorn so it has that that sort of classic mala numbing hot citron flavor profile um i'm surprised you don't know you should if you know you're if you're in la um get out to the san gabriel ba- valley yeah. and, <laughs> and get some mapo tofu but um that's the citron original i grew up eating the japanese version of it which is not very spicy um i mean it can be a little bit spicy but japanese food in general is not spicy right um and rather than being made with with chinese wine dobanjang is made with um sake and mirin and these japanese ingredients so my mom you know my mom made that for us a lot growing up and that was always our favorite meal oh, i love it um and she would make she would make um, rather than using straight up ground beef she would make um, dumpling filling um, out of out of beef, you know, and so beef seasoned beef. Um, and then me and my sister would sit there and fold dumpling, you know, like once every two months or so, we would sit in front of the TV and fold dumplings so that we could have them in our freezer. Um, and then the leftover dumpling filling, my mom would make into um, mapo tofu. So those 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 days, the days where we made dumplings, and then she made the leftover dumpling filling into dump, mapo tofu, and we had for dinner, we would have mapo tofu and dumplings. Um, those were easily my favorite meals. Growing up, love it, um, and would be my death row meal now. <laughs> okay, well, your homework is to text me the name of a restaurant I need to get the tofu from in L.A. and I'll order it tonight. All right. Um, what is the best high end meal that you've ever had? Like crazy tasting menu-y type thing. Uh, the best high end meal I've ever had was at um, at La Bernardin in in New York, Eric Repair's place in New York, um, which I've been there a number of times, um, but. The, the the best the best one we had was was the first time I would, I'd been there and this is when you know my wife was a grad student and I was a food writer and we were both extraordinarily <laughs> we, were, we were very you know very you didn't have the the, the very, very low money of living yeah 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 but we had saved up um, we 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 saved up for a year um, so that we could go to Lebanon um, actually we saved up so that we could have a sort of New York vacation you know we we were living in um, Brooklyn at the time or maybe, maybe at that point we were living in Harlem. But um, we lived in an apartment in Brooklyn that literally had no windows. Hmm. Um, it was just a black box. 
um, with a construction, like where the, they were tearing down the building right next door to us every morning, um, like jackhammering right next to our window. I'm sorry, right next to our bedroom, which had no windows. But anyhow, we we had been saving up, and um, and so we we spent a night at the um, at the Waldorf, and then went to and went to Le Bernardin for dinner. And, and I hadn't realized it, but they have a dress code policy there. Um, and so um, we re- realized it like um, like an hour before we saw like, oh, shit, they have a dress code. Right. I'm wearing like jeans and sneakers. Um, I didn't even have a suit at the time. So we, we had to like call up a friend who lived across town um, to, to come and deliver a suit for me to borrow. Oh, my God. Um, they, um, or, or pants and pants and a shirt. Um, they have at Le Bernardin, they gave me a jacket to wear during dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, um, but it was it was I mean an incredible meal. Um, I mean food wise, food you know for me generally I, I the food at a meal is important to me, but um, I find you know the the service and the atmosphere of a restaurant to be much more important for me um, because you know you go out to a restaurant to sort of to feel good, right? Yeah. It's like you want you want to feel good. You don't, you don't want to feel like you're out of place. You don't want to feel um, and and you know and what I found amazing was that even though. I clearly was um, not their normal clientele. Um, they were so so kind and so uh, made us feel so welcome there. Um, I love that. Um, you know, even the sommelier, it's like it's like it was clear that we were probably whatever they suggested to us, we were going to take the cheapest option, right? You know, but even then, it's like they were they worked with us. They they gave us a lot of attention. Like it was it was just such a such a good positive experience overall, and especially for as someone. Um, who wanted to make that a special experience and, and who had saved up a lot of money and had been like really looking forward to it. Um, uh, the service was just like outstanding, which um, which uh, which was good for me. That's awesome. That's so good to hear. I, Eric Repair just seems like such a great guy, and you don't get three yeah. Michelin stars every year forever by just like resting on any laurels. So you know, and it's also yeah. not yeah. like you said, you can't just have really really amazing food, but like shitty service, which a lot of these places have. Right. And have the longevity. Right. He's kind of low key, just been there forever. And you also, you also can't, you also can't, you know, as as a restaurant, as a restaurant owner now, um, or re- re- a chef, um, you can't, you can't, and you shouldn't judge, you know, judge a book by their cover, and you, you shouldn't be judgmental of customers. Um, and, and and you know, and and I, you know, back in those days when you know when we were on that you know grad student food writer budget, um, you know, we we d- we did that a few times. We we saved up money. We went to we went to a fancy restaurant, and um, and it was always hit or miss. You know, it's like we had one time we went to we went to Per Se, you know, in New York. Yeah. And the the sommelier there, like, once he saw what we were, what the kind of you know the kind of budget we had, like, basically ignored us. You know, it's like we 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 are, we ordered we had a tasting menu, which is all you can order there, um, and we wanted to do a wine pairing, and it was like, well, and so we were like. I'll have the I, I I took the vegetarian tasting menu. My wife took the the um you know the the regular tasting menu. Um, and then we're like you know we'd like to um, do a wine pairing, but um but we just want to split one. Can you like could you could you give us half pours of each thing? And then and the sommelier was like what? But like she's having the oysters, you're having the asparagus. Like what am I supposed to do? Um, and we're like well. Like what an asshole! Isn't that your job? What a dick. Um, and then and then he refused to he refused to split glasses. Like he came over, he he poured a glass of wine, he set it down in the middle of us. All he said was "Viognier" and walked away. Like didn't oh my, God. you know, which is not which is not a sommelier's job. And and you know, thankfully, one of the servers saw saw what was going on and came over and like um, a manager came over and they and they're like, hey, like sorry about that experience. Um, they you know and they they tried hard to make it right. But that just kind of put a sour mood on the rest of the evening, you know. And and that's not that that kind of thing happened um, happens a lot, you know. And I and I, and it, and it makes it makes it always makes me think like it's like 
if I go back there now, you know, now is like a whatever, like, oh, I'm a celebrity food writer or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and, I, and I'm not on a grad student budget, you know, on a food writer, um, like a freelance food writer's budget anymore. Like, would I still be treated the same way? Probably not, you know? Um, and it, so that, you know, so that, that's something that um, really always has stuck out to me um, with the service that we had at, at Le Bernardin, um, just how. You're like, you're like, Ju- you're like Julia Roberts in uh, Pretty Woman when she goes back with the bag. Right, 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 Big right. mistake, big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> what is your best low-end meal that you've ever had? This could be a street taco. It could be, you know, something that costs less yeah. than a dollar. <laughs> um, the best low-end meal I've ever had. I mean, there's a lot of them, but um, I would say probably the most memorable one was um, a few years back. My wife and I were um, we when we when we actually when we moved to California, where we don't live anymore. But when we moved from New York to California, um, we uh, she had just graduated from grad school, um, and so. We again had saved up a lot of money to travel a bit, um, and so we were on a um, we were on a forty dollar a day budget traveling around um, Asia. So we were in, and we were in China for a little over a month, um, and then after China, we went to um, we went to Chiang Mai in, in Thailand. Um, and I remember the the first meal we had in Chiang Mai was from a as we had um, samtam, you know, the hot green papaya salad um, made by some guy in the street, and it was after a month of eating like nothing but like noodles and, and noodles in China and, and we were in, you know we were in northern China for a while but like eating, eating nothing but like noodles and noodles and dumplings and right and and Chinese food right um which is wonderful but it's like after a month of that like coming to Thailand and having this like fresh bright fresh <laughs> right. it's a different kind of spicy than most of the spicy things you find in China is like having the having this really bright fresh salad was just like oh my god this is like the best thing ever um and it was like extraordinarily hot um both temperature wise and and the salad was extraordinary i mean the the weather was very hot and the salad was very hot but um it just felt like the most refreshing thing ever like after after right. um and it, and it, it must have cost like 50 cents that's awesome know? um however many baht it was but it was, it was um yeah that would be my most mo- most memorable meal that's awesome do you have a favorite drunk food Let's say you order the whole yeah. whole uh, wine pairing for for two, and you get hammered. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know when I lived in, I grew up in New York, so um, a slice of pizza has got to be it. But I live on the West Coast now, and, and it's and it's just not the same culture. You know, it doesn't have the same sort of by the slice late night, um, right? You know, casual pizza culture out here. Um, so these days at home. I would say it's a it's a quesadilla like that's that's what I make like ninety percent of the time and if you've watched any of my YouTube videos where you know sometimes my YouTube videos I'll I'll strap a GoPro on my head at like two a.m. and make myself a a late night um, you know drunk snack I love it's it. like at least eighty percent of the time it's some form of quesadilla or something made on a flour tortilla that's that's crispy and fried and cheesy. Your GoPro videos, by the way, I got to give a shout out to them because I feel like, did you start doing them during quarantine? Um, no, I, you know, I started doing them a few years ago, but it was it was just before quarantine. It was like in February, late February, that um, I realized that some of the older ones had like a ton of views. You know, I just did it as a, fun, as a thing for fun for myself. It's like I had a GoPro around, so it's like, I wonder what it would look like to shoot a video with this camera in my head. Um, and I, at the time it was like a GoPro four, which had no stabilization or anything. And it looked like, it looked like crap and it still looks like crap, but, um, yeah, you get like a seizure watching the video. <laughs> yeah. 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 But even so there was like a video I had where I was just like making a grilled cheese. And I looked in like February of this past, like 2019 and I saw, Oh shit. Like there's like 1.2 million views on this video of just making a grilled cheese. Maybe like this is a thing. 
Um, and so then I, I, I was like, all right, I'll, maybe I'll buy like a slightly better camera. I bought a GoPro 7 then, which had some stabilization um, and just try recording things. Um, and, and I did. And it, and it turned out people liked watching it They're and so it was great. easy for me to do. Um, so I did. I, you know, I haven't done it for the last couple months because we moved recently. We just moved to Seattle. Um, and so um, and I've been like focusing on getting this other book done um, and been on this sort of virtual book tour for my children's book and for the um, the best food writing stuff. So I haven't had time to do the the GoPro videos, but I, but I am planning on doing it again in 2020. And I would be um, in sorry in, in 20 what is it, 2021. Um, but I think you know it's I didn't realize, and you know I, of course I should have because there are people who make profession you know who professionally make YouTube videos. Yeah. But like I didn't realize like you can actually make a decent living um, making YouTube videos. And I think in 2020 it'll probably be my main income get out of here how cool Um, just surprising i love that i'm excited to ask you this question because you probably actually have the scientific accurate answer here but what's the best hangover cure or what do you love to have for a hangover (laughs) and what does science say is the best thing to have for a hangover well i don't think there is any there there science says the best thing for a hangover is is time and right (laughs) and water you know not to have drank (laughs) as much (laughs) and not to have drank as much um the thing when I'm if I'm hungover, what I what I get, what I crave more than anything, and this is like, um, <laughs> is is a um, a bacon egg and cheese biscuit from McDonald's. Nice with a hash brown and orange drink, <laughs> not orange juice, <laughs> right. um, but like the orange high C, which they don't have anymore. I don't think they do have orange high C anymore. So now it's a diet coke. Oh. But, um, uh, diet coke is actually like my hangover thing. It's like either diet coke or Japanese uh, mugicha, which is like roasted barley tea. Those are the two things I, I want to drink when I'm hungover. That those are the two things I can drink that don't seem to like upset my stomach. Like I can't have coffee, can't have orange juice when I'm hungover. Right, right. It just hurts my stomach. Um, but either diet coke or or barley tea that, that would be my. I hangover. like it. Miso soup. Miso soup is also great on a hangover. Oh yeah, for sure. It's easy to easy to make and it's like salty it settles well yeah for sure do you have a favorite celebrity chef or celebrity food personality besides yourself (laughs) um it wouldn't be myself um favorite celebrity chef um you know i can tell you people who were influential to me growing up like you know certainly someone like um as far as far as like influence in the media world goes like someone like alton brown it's like you know like it clearly has a has had an influence on that on the type of work I do. Um, and I'd say, um, I don't know. I don't really follow that many celebrity chefs. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not really a fan of sort of celebrity for celebrity's sake. Um, and, and it also like, I don't know, like it, it feels like, um, when, you know, when I first became a cook, it was people on, you know, it was people on food now. So, um, you know, well, pre, pre pre food network, it was people like Jacques Pepin, and, and Jacques Pepin is still one of sort of my idols. Um, um, but you know, like 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 Anthony Bourdain, it's like he made cooking cool, right? You know, right. Um, and like so, I think his book came out in like 1998. I became a cook in 1999, um, a large part due to that book, right? Um, thinking like, oh, this is like a cool lifestyle, um, and then cel- celebrity chef would just came got out of hand, yeah, you know, for sure. Um, and celebrity, you know, chefs as a general population, especially like the type of chefs that are around in like, um, you know, the pre 2000s, like 90s and early 2000s, like the type of people who became chefs in those days, like they're the worst people to hand celebrity to. Right. You know, it's because it's like, um, you know, and, and it led to a ton of sort of, um, I think, abuse and bad behavior. And, um, you know, and like, and it's like people like Gordon Ramsay, who, who 
are, are abusive, right? right? Both both physically and mentally and, and verbally. And and maybe he's maybe he's better now, but I, from all accounts, he's not. And it's like you, you, you people get celebrated for doing these really shitty things uh, right. and, and and behaving badly. So I, I you know I, I tend to I try and avoid sort of the celebrity um, chef culture. Um, but as far as as far as idols go, you know, I, I would I would have to say Jacques Pepin. It's like he's always um, I think. Um, and, 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 you know, and knowing him just a little bit now, like, I, you know, it's like, um, I'm doing a video for his foundation next year and, and I've, I've met him a number of times. Um, even when I was a line cook, like he came into one of the restaurants I worked at once, um, as a customer. Um, and I was a line cook, like I was in the back and, and someone's like, oh, like Jacques Pepin's here. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, and, um, I remember I made, um, pomme souffle, which are these like very precise, it, it's these potato chips essentially that puff up as you fry them, mm. um, so that they're hollow inside. Um, and like we, um, and so I had to make these and then stuff them with caviar and whatever, all this like fancy stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I made them for him and then he came into the kitchen, um, after, um, after his meal to thank us. Like he came and thanked, like came, talked to each cook, thanked us all. Um, and he saw that I was making palm souffle and, and like he asked, he asked me, um, how it was working. And I was like, well, like I get like, I get about a 30, 30% success rate. I have to throw out a lot of the ones that don't come out perfectly. Um, um, and he like st- stood there for like 10 minutes talking to me and like gave me advice on how to make it, how to do it better. Um, things to look for in the potato. Like how it's just cool. like, I'm this like guy making 11 bucks an hour, you know, b- b- minimum wage um, cooking potatoes. Um, and he took time out of his day to, um, especially like after his meal, he took time out to come thank each one of us and like, and to, and to, and, and gave me time to like, Help me learn how to be a better cook, um, and so that that stuck with me. Um, and you know, and I've I've, I've since I've, I've met him several times since then, and he you know, he doesn't remember that event, of course, because he I'm, he does that kind of stuff all the time. Um, but he is always a hundred percent of the times I've met him, um, you know, the personality that he has on TV, this kind of um, caring and kind person who wants to help other people, and 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 as an educator, like a hundred percent of the times I've met him, that's that's been him him in real life. How awesome! Um, and so I've always found that really inspiring I, that he just seems like you know he's a genuinely good caring person what is your desert island food so you're trapped on a desert island there's one thing that you can eat for the rest of your life you're never going to tire of it yeah pizza pizza <laughs> okay easy answer pizza is the only thing i could eat every day every meal and not get sick of it. that's the main one that people say i think that someone needs to open up yeah. a desert island pizzeria <laughs> is there a food that you can't stand eating Bananas, I, like I've been trying to get better about them. Really? But bananas are the one food that I really, I really dislike them. Um, and, and I think it all t- ties back to my childhood because we had, um, you know, my mom would drive us to school in the morning, and um, in our car we had one of those. In the back seat we had one of those little like in-car garbage can things. Yeah. Um, for for um, you know for trash. Um, and my sister would either eat like a banana or an apple every day and then leave the banana peel or the apple core in that little trash can. And then by the time my mom came to pick us up, up in the afternoon, like, just the, the car always smelled like rotten bananas. Rotten fruit. <laughs> like, like old, yeah, like old banana peels. And so now when I just like opening up a banana, that smell hits me I'm like, oh, yeah. like, and I just get this like flashback to these muggy car rides full of r- rotten fruit smells from my childhood. <laughs> right. I'm like, I don't like, and I just can't do it. Okay. I get that. That makes sense. This is uh, probably my favorite question because I like talking shit. But what is your restaurant pet peeve? <laughs> um, I would say it's it's. I mean, it's probably what we talked about earlier. It's just like um, bad, you know, bad service. Like 
when when you treat when restaurants that treat customers like the restaurant is doing them a favor yeah you know as opposed to as opposed to ha- having sort of a relationship you know on, on the flip side my my customer pet peeve is customers who treat restaurants um like they're um you know serve you know or, or treat servants like their serve uh, servers like their servants right. um and and who who feel entitled because they're customers um I you know I I think just in general like not respecting other people's humanity whether um, whether it's from the res- restaurant to the customer side or the customer to the person side like that's just a something that that we we should do less of yeah no that's a that's a good call and last question uh, what is the first restaurant that you will visit after quarantine is over I, you know uh, this one it's you know as as someone with a um, a toddler, it, it's probably l- going to end up being her call. <laughs> I'll say, hey, Alicia, where do you want to go for lunch today? Um, and it'll probably be it'll probably be for sushi because she loves raw fish, but it might be pizza. Who knows? I love it. I love it. <laughs> awesome. So tell everyone about uh, where they can find your books, by the way, and, and how you're giving away um, a lot of the money to charity. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, bookshop.org slash shop slash Kenji Lopez alt. Um, so um, bookshop.org, it's a website that um, partners with independent bookshops around the country. Um, and so when you order my books from there, um, 10% of the revenue goes directly to independent bookshops around the country. Um, and then um, a, a further 10%, which is m- um, my sales commission there, um, is going to go is going to no kid hungry. Um, who, you know, right now they, they always do great work, but, but right now, especially, um, you know, with schools out, um, not opening a- around the country, um, you know, there, there's 22 million kids in this country that 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 get school lunches normally, um, and many of them aren't able to get it right now, um, and many of them come from families that um, you know parents are are out of work, um, and um, you know, so now now more than ever, you know, this the stuff that No Kid Hungry is doing, um, I think is is really important. That's awesome. Um, so. Yeah, so you can get my books there, um, and I think you know support local businesses and support um, a good organization That's, at the same time. That is so nice of you. You're such a nice guy. I, there's got to be some vice that you're not telling me about, some awful thing that you do. You can't just be <laughs> such a good guy, Kenji. <laughs> <laughs> there, I, there, I, have, I have many, I have many issues. I have, I have many bad, many. There are many, many not great things I do. <laughs> I try, try to be better every day. Though. I don't buy it, um, Kenji. Thank you so, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, what is your uh, your socials that people can find you at Kenji? Uh, at at Kenji Lopez Alt. Awesome. Um, on yeah, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, YouTube. That's the moneymaker now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. You too. This episode of Green Eggs and Dan was produced by Andrew Steven and edited by Jordan Aaron. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. The theme music is Beautiful Food by Idan, and the interstitial music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's really important to us, guys. Please do it. If you want more Green Eggs and Dan action, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at StandUpDan. Also, we have a YouTube page where you can actually see me and my guests going through their fridge in addition to other videos. Just type in Green Eggs and Dan in YouTube, like and subscribe please we need a lot of subscribers on that page you will really enjoy it it's a very fun element of the show
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.